Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Perfect Imbalance. On this show, we bring together conversation and expertise. My name is Jeff Way, and I'm the founder of Perfect Imbalance, the first podcast to challenge the myth of work-life balance and explore alternatives for improving overall well-being. Each week, I'll be interviewing different thought leaders, elite sports performers and entrepreneurs to understand how they are achieving happiness, success and greater fulfilment in their lives. So here's to you, the listeners, joining us each week. Welcome to Perfect Imbalance. On this episode, I share my interview with Greg Searle, bronze medal winner in London 2012, 20 years after winning a gold medal in Barcelona 1992. On this episode, we discuss his sporting achievements and the life experiences along the way, the personal pain of finishing fourth in his third Olympics at the peak of his career when lots of others were achieving gold in Sydney 2000, his driver for coming back at 40 to compete in London 2012, and why Greg's ultimately now looking to combine his enthusiasm at 20 with his wisdom at 40 to inspire peak performance in teams and individuals. Here's Greg. Greg, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to take some time out to come on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to spend some time with you. So thank you very much. No, thanks very much. Well, if I didn't have some balance in my life, I wouldn't be able to find 45 minutes to have a chat with you. So I'm very happy to do that. Excellent. And, and that's really where I want to go first and foremost, as I do with each of my guests. So I send through some thoughts in advance of, of our interview around work-life balance and, and the conundrum that we face. What's your thoughts on work-life balance? Yeah, so I think for me, um, I've managed to get myself to a position now at the age of 46 where I've been really passionate about sporting goals at one stage, really passionate about working goals. Um, and I think through, through a course of learning, I've got to say mostly through ups and not too many downs or certainly not as I see it, they weren't, they weren't massive downs. Um, I think I've been able to get perspective and I think that's probably perspective that comes from having successes and setbacks, seeing them in a good way. And, and now I think at 46, I've got a reasonable balance on, on my life and perspective on seeing my kids growing up and, and wanting to not let that pass me by and do enough work to, to keep myself in the way that myself and my family want to be accustomed, really. And, and just going back to your earlier career, were there times when, when you had balance then, or, or were you finding yourself more out of balance, given the, the nature of what you were doing? Yeah, so I suppose if I go right back, I mean, my sport was rowing, um, and I did the three Olympics when I was in my 20s. Um, and certainly for the first one in Barcelona when we won, when I was 20, I would have thought rowing was the most important thing in the world. And I think in order to be successful, um, it was pretty important that I did make it the most important thing in the world. So I could say I didn't do as well in my A-levels as I should. Um, you know, I found a degree course at university that was, that was pretty manageable on a pretty small amount of work. 
um, and I'd say I lived, I didn't enjoy the social side of, of being a 20 year old, but I'd say I was 100% passionate about my sports and that gave me the results in that short term. Do, do you think, and this is just a thought running through my head, Craig, do, do you think balance is, is something that we get a better grasp on or, or a better awareness and idea of as we age and, and we, you know, I'm in my 40s as well, as, as we reach that, that period, you know, perhaps around the, the 40 where we are clearer on, on what's getting our time and what's getting our energy perhaps? Yeah, I think it's interesting. As we grow older, obviously more things become important in life. So, uh, I mean, funny, as a 20-year-old and then, and then as a 24-year-old when I went to my second games, um, I think I started to feel like I was having to make some more difficult choices. When I was 20, it was an easy choice to say, I'll go training rather than going uh, to a party. Um, I'll go training rather than um you know do my exams or study so much um i think as we get a bit older those other things kind of become more important and that you know there's more of a tension um of, of those competing activities so i would say by my second games i i said yes to more other things in life and i think as we go through our 20s we have to say yes to other things in life because you know we have to become more independent um take more responsibility and so then by the time I was 28, um, I was married. My wife was expecting our first child. I was a homeowner. Um, I had a, a job that was a, a salaried job, but I was able to do it part time. Um, and, and those competing things then all get in the way of each other, I guess. Um, and therefore, I would, I would say, although I, I don't regret it, my sporting performance probably suffered because there was other things going on. But I hope I was able to perform in other ways. And, you know, for most people, coming fourth at the Olympics would feel like a pretty decent level of success. I guess the problem for me was that there was, I believed I was capable of better. Um, and having got a gold and a bronze previously, to then be 28, probably at the peak of my physical powers, but to have lots of other competing things in the way meant that the, you know, my, my level of prioritisation I guess maybe should be questioned. It, it, it's interesting that, that you know you, you describe it that way because you're right. For for lots of people, um, actually coming fourth in in an Olympic Games would would be an achievement, and and they'd be happy with that. You clearly had achieved, you know, other medals and other finishes. What what was it? What was it like coming fourth in comparison to to those other? you know, medal achievements that you'd won? Yeah, well, funnily enough, um, coming fourth for me, actually, age 28, felt pretty much the same as coming third at 24. Um, mm -hmm. In both situations, I, my initial reaction was just I felt like I lost um, because I'd gone there to win. Um, and winning was going to be gold and everything else was going to be losing. Um, and I suppose over the course of time you get to take a different perspective on it and I feel incredibly proud to have done those those three Olympics um, and to have had different life experiences um, but certainly the coming forth in Sydney when you say what was that like um, it was it was difficult it was painful it was disappointing 
There was also the level of comparison between me and the rest of Team GB and the British rowing team, because that was the Olympics when Steve Redgrave won his fifth gold medal. Um, the eight, um, the Great Britain men's eight, also won a gold medal. So there were suddenly 13 people um, with gold medals around their necks who I'd spent most of my year training with and me coming back with nothing. Um, and it's the things that then follow. So, you know, the, the silly things, flying home from the Olympics in Sydney, um, if you had a medal around your neck, you boarded the aeroplane and you turned left and you climbed into business class. Um, the rest of us turned right and sat down in economy. <laughs> and then, uh, then we flew back. And then when you fly back, everyone with the medals is greeted by a huge party and media presence. And you quietly head off home. Uh, because you know the media don't really need to talk to you they want to talk to people with the medals and then you know quite rightly Steve Redgrave was massively celebrated um, having got his fifth gold and and it was the millennium and sort of man of the millennium and all this sort of thing and the other rowers were all all there too at the sports personality of the years and going on question of sport and all those sort of fun things and I I wasn't and so it's then the sort of longer term way that that sets in and, and I think then the important for me, importance for me then was to actually say this thing that I thought was really important isn't so important that actually when we're passionate about something we have to make it really the most important thing in the world but actually when it's gone and you realize you don't have it and other people perhaps do then I have to reframe it and go actually that thing that I thought was so important is not so important and actually, whatever other things, being a father, having a family, doing my job well, trying to be a good friend, brother, son, seem more important than this very sort of binary win-lose goal that I've been going after. We, we hold our athletes up on a, a pedestal, especially those that, you know, achieve the unbelievable and, and, and come back with, with a gold medal or indeed any medal. You clearly went through a, a different experience to, to a lot of your colleagues, peers, friends, you know, teammates in, in, in that Sydney Olympics. What, what got you back in the boat 12 years later to, and it wasn't 12 years, obviously, but, but what was the driver for getting yourself back out there and, and wanting to compete in, in London? Yeah, so I think a more balanced approach, um, sticking with the language we're using here, really. So, so after those Sydney Olympics, I, I did some other things. I got involved in some sailing for a few years. And then I came back and I really started working in the learning and development space um, with companies and partly telling my story, but really hearing other people's stories and, and hearing how teams worked at, in a, a corporate environment and how leaders led and how people coached. Um, and all of that was really, for me, um, quite therapeutic, I guess, because I ended up sharing bits of my story, but hearing other people's stories, being asked a lot of questions and doing a lot of reflection. Um, and I worked with some great colleagues as well over the course of that time and learned to understand the position that sport had had in my life and then see it in perspective compared to other people's goals and aspirations whether that's my families 
um, or whether that's colleagues or, or clients. And so then over the course of the next 10 years, um, I, I stayed fit and healthy. Um, I did the things that I suppose healthy 30 somethings do. So I entered a few triathlons. I ran a couple of London marathons and raised money for charities and, and did those things. And I also kept doing a bit of rowing. Um, but I'm talking about twice a week um, going to my local club and just going, enjoying being on the water, really. Um, and then the massive thing that happened was we successfully bid for and got to host the London Olympics. Um, and when we got to host those London Olympics, we did it under the banner of wanting to inspire a generation. And I, as soon as we got to host it, had this little moment of thinking, well, when those Olympics happen, and I know, I know the dates, we had the dates in place, when we host those Olympics, we're going to give out gold medals on the 2nd of August, 2012. And I had won a gold medal on the 2nd of August, 1992. Um, so we'd have the opportunity um, to repeat what I'd done as a 20-year-old, as a 40-year-old. Um, and under the banner of Inspire a Generation, my children would be 9 and 11 uh, when I would be doing that. So it became quite... a uh, a good um, goal to just quietly dream of and, and quietly think about um, that that would be that would be a pretty enormous challenge, but a pretty enormous success if I was able to go back and and under the banner of inspiring a generation go back and do that. Um, but I knew that if I was going to do it, I would have to do it in a sensible way that would that would balance with the rest of my life. Yeah, how how do you go from you know what you were doing with organizations and, and in the corporate world you know keeping yourself fit to then switching that mindset back on albeit you know 16 17 years after as a 20 year old you're on that, that podium how how did that happen for for you greg and, and was 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 your family involved in terms of that decision making process and and how they could support you well, it's funny the crazy circumstances that happen, really, that that, that cause you to make some choices in life. Um, and I'd say there's probably two important events that happened um, in the year of 2009. So I was at that stage just healthy and and, and being sporty. Um, and I remember I was playing some five-a-side football um, with dads from my kids' primary school. And right before Christmas of 2008, it must have been, um, I was running down the wing, chasing a ball that I shouldn't have really been bothering to chase. It was a lost cause and I should have given it up. And I swung my left foot, which is my wrong foot as well, and tried to cross it. Um, and in the process, my boot stuck in the AstroTurf and I went right through it um, and ended up, ended up um, breaking my leg quite badly. Um, I actually had a fracture in my ankle, but also something called the tibial plateau, um, which is basically like sort of driving an axe into the top bit of your shin bone. Um, so I had to get that bolted together. And that was all the beginning of 2009. So I spent the year, so the start of the year on crutches. Um, but I was booked to go snowboarding um, in about February 
Um, so I, I was pretty determined to try and get back to health because um, I wanted to go on that trip. It was a nice family trip and there was people I wanted to go with. So I had to get back into the gym and I had to get back with a very clear goal. And up until that point, I'd been doing exercise, but not with the same degree of focus and determination. But I was really determined to get back. So I was going in and doing the the classic rehabbing exercises for a fairly withered left leg. Um, but that only took 15 or 20 minutes. And, and I wasn't going to go to the gym for 15 or 20 minutes. So I found myself starting to do some upper body weights, um, do some things for my right leg. Um, and generally start to get back into the habit of training again. So once my legs started getting better, I continued training through. And so in 2009, I got back into the habit of training properly. Again, I still probably wouldn't have done anything about it had I not gone to the World Rowing Championships as a commentator in 2009. And then I went and, and watched and commentated on the British team rowing and the rest of the world rowing. Um, Again, that was quite inspirational, and I could see our team was okay, but I could see they weren't great yet, and the London Olympics were only now three years away. And I remember the day after those championships, I went to the airport in Poland, and um, I sat in the airport in Poland, and my plane was massively delayed. And as I sat in the departure lounge, the rest of the rowing world was literally and metaphorically passing me by. And, and heading off towards London um, with the London Olympics just three years away. Everyone was sort of excited about what had just happened at these world championships. And in fact, I, got, I had to go back and have a 24-hour layover. And that 24 hours was just one of those moments in my life where, for whatever reason, you have to hit the pause button. And I couldn't get to the workshop I was supposed to be running back in England. Um, I had to just sit and reflect and recognize where I was in my life and, and what opportunities lay ahead. And, and at that time I was working with a lot of companies and you know, getting them to think about where they want to be in three years from now and how they're going to get there. And um, I realized that in three years time, the London Olympics were going to happen. And I didn't really know what I was going to be doing there or, or how I was going to get there. And in that 24 hours, I, I made a very clear decision that I wanted to come back I wanted to compete and I wanted to win a gold medal on the 2nd of August 2012. It, it's fascinating listening to you share how, how that decision came about and the fact that you were in that airport lounge as the, the squad, the team were, were, were passing you by, you know, literally and, and, and metaphorically. You're still three years out and you've still got a lot of work to do as you started to share your decision with family and friends and and then the, the the rowing community what what was their initial response yeah so mixed and different from different people um i remember i was i was driving to um somewhere outside of nottingham uh, to run a workshop for nestle cereal partners <laughs> And as I drove up, I, uh, I was late because uh, I was 24 hours delayed. But I remember just having a conversation with my wife on the phone about what was in my head. And I just had to tell her. I had to share it with her. Um, and I think as I was driving along, I got really emotional. 
uh, when I thought about what was possible and, and where I'd come from um, in terms of my past Olympics and how she'd been with me um, in Sydney 2000 when I'd come forth um, and felt the disappointment of that and how I wanted to put that right and that this was an opportunity to do something that, that I could be proud of for the rest of my life um, and that we could share in together. And I remember getting emotional. I remember she told me to stop the car and not to be driving in the state I was in, um, which I did. Um, and then we agreed that this was a, a, a sort of adventure that we'd share for the next three years. And um, we knew it would be different to me just having a regular day job, but it wouldn't necessarily be different worse. It could be different better. Um, so I headed on and, and ran the workshop um, and then pretty much as soon as I got back from the workshop, um, after a few words with my wife, I got my rowing machine out and uh, did 2000 meters on it as fast as I could. So I could get a, get a gauge on where I was, um, and figure out where I needed to be. Um, I then had to speak to the, the rowing authorities. Um, and that was to start with the head coach, um, who's a guy from the former Germany called Jürgen Grobler. Um, his initial reaction was he, he, he'd known me from Sydney and he'd known what work I'd been doing. So I said I wanted to come back for London. And he said, Greg, that's very interesting. Have you considered coaching? Um, and I said, well, I, I've considered coaching, but I think I'm still capable of competing. Um, and then what was good about Jürgen was he was uh, very much um, a data-driven person. So he was able to say to me very clearly, these are the performance parameters. If you can do this and this and this, then I will have no choice but to select you. Um, so you need to go away and start working on those things. So that gave me pretty clear guidance on what I needed to do. Um, and then I, I basically then said about jumping over the hurdles. And um, I, had, I had a lot of interest from a lot of people who were also ex-rowers. So at the first set of trials, there was a decent number of, slightly older athletes who'd, who'd had their time but wanted to come back and give it another go um, and I had the, the technique um, probably and the, the mindset and the physicality to be able to get through some of those first hurdles and then get invited closer and closer to the rest of the team um, and I suppose for the rest of the team who are already preparing for London their reaction was possibly a mixture I should think of anyone joining the team of, of here's a bit of a, a threat as well as here's a bit of an opportunity because everyone's worried about their place and whether they're going to make it but you also want to have the best people around you if you do make it um, so I'd say my reception was largely warm um, no different really to any other new person and there are plenty of other new people who joined the squad who had who had potential that they might have been there for London um, and then over the course of the time I think the fact that I was older was a factor, but there were loads of things about each and every person that made them interesting and different in their own ways. Um, so it didn't end up feeling like a massive factor, I don't think. I ended up just being another member of the team. And, and the thing that was different about me was, was I was old Greg. Um, and they were all just that little bit younger. <laughs> I, I love it and uh, I'm smiling when you were describing um, Jürgen's response in terms of yeah. coaching because <laughs> clearly that was his initial thought when you said you were coming back. 
Yeah, absolutely. That um, I think he was, you know, he was open-minded. He wanted the best people in his team in whatever capacity he could, he could build that team. And that includes the, the support functions that go around it. So possibly saw me as a, as a, as a coaching resource. But like I said, I was ready to, I was ready to prove to him that I was capable of being a, a, a rowing resource. Um, and that's how it proved to be. I want to fast forward to 2012, 2nd of August, you've won the bronze medal. How does that feel in comparison to all the other medals that, that you won? Yeah, so I would say far easier to um, be comfortable with a bronze medal at the age of 40 than at the age of 24 um, or a fourth place at the age of 28. Um, Still initial disappointment, um, two bits of disappointment actually. The, the eighth race ended up happening on the 1st of August, not the 2nd of August. <laughs> so I missed my Olympic birthday by a day. I think it was the, I can't remember, the Coxless Four or something ended up being on the next day, uh, on the 2nd of August. But for me to, to be in the eight, we, we went out to win. You know, we, we trained to win, we expected to win. And we felt disappointed when we crossed the line, having come third. Um, but I think I also, as you know, as the nine of us stood there, the eight rowers plus the cox, I'm sure we all had different emotions going through us. And I think the emotion I had was that I knew this was um, disappointing, but I knew it was also something to feel proud of and that we should all feel proud of it, that we'd, we'd competed in our home Olympics and our friends and families were there. Um, and that we should do our best to enjoy the moment, even though it wasn't the the perfection of a gold medal. Um, so I did enjoy the moment somewhat. We got back in the crew. We came back and and and, and rode back and had some some strong and important words between us as a, as a team. And then over the course of the next week or so, we um, we celebrated or commiserated in our own ways. And for me to be able to um, I think have the balance of pretty much meeting up with my family and having my, my kids there aged nine and 11 dressed in the Olympic kit um, together with my wife and feeling incredibly proud that, that most people of my age in 2012 were excited if they'd managed to get a ticket um, <laughs> to watch an event. Um, they were able to be proud that I'd been able to get selected for the team and, and get into one of the teams and be able to win a medal, um, albeit that it wasn't the ultimate um, perfect gold medal. It was still a pretty decent achievement and that they and, and my, I felt really proud of it. And the people who'd supported me along the way that I'd had you know, a number of those companies that I've worked with had shared in the journey with me um, over the three years and, and that I felt very grateful for the support I'd got from them and that they could feel part of it. And I think the whole thing in London was that everyone felt part of our success. Um, I mean, I'm one of those people when, you know, when England do well at football or, or any other sport, then I say, we are playing well. We have made it through to the semi-finals. Um, in exactly the same way, suddenly everyone's saying, we won the rowing. <laughs> uh, we won a bronze in the eight. Um, but... I was actually in the eight. <laughs> so I was able to just enjoy everything that was so positive about London. We were running a great Olympics. Uh, we went out and won 29 gold medals. Um, we went out and won 
57 medals in total of which my bronze was one of them um and it just felt like a such an incredible thing to be part of and i could see it much more for what it was rather than in my earlier years when i didn't have the wisdom um to to have the perspective i think yeah it's interesting you talk about wisdom and, and i think it does it does come with with age strangely enough and clearly your experience in that period of time between winning your your first medal in barcelona and and then you know having that defining moment in, in 2012 there's just been a lot of wisdom that has been gleaned um during that period of time greg what so j- jumping ahead now to, to to what you do today what what was your driver or what's been your driver for creating um Key's business concierge, as, as well as setting up 2040, which I suspect people would see more as a, a natural route for, for a sports person to take. What, what's been your driver with, with those two businesses? Yeah, they're both really interesting businesses. I think um, uh, if I think about the Key's business concierge, I mean, the idea of that is to try to help your people um, maximize their performance um, in work and in fact if I think about the work I do as, as yeah Greg Sell 2040 it's also about helping people maximize their performance at work it, with the concierge service I had this sort of idea that within anything you do your performance is only as is, is very rarely as good as your potential you know you've got your potential to be ama- amazing at so many things and yet you don't always hit that and why don't you hit that and the reason is probably because other stuff gets in the way um and the thing i loved about the keys concierge concept is that it helps provide you with that support network that takes away lots of the the interference takes away lots of the tasks that people end up slightly wasting their time on (laughs) instead of doing the jobs that they're employed to do um, so by providing a support function, someone on the end of the phone who can help you book your travel, help you look after your birthday present shopping for your partner, um, whatever it might be, that allows you to focus on what you want to do and what you need to do, which is to run your business or to be a good employee or whatever. So yeah, Keys Concierge, I think, helps create an environment like we had in 2012 where there was the support around the team. And that, I think, leads to much greater results. Um, in terms of the other work I do, um, really in my own business as, as Greg Searle 2040, I like the idea of trying to capture this enthusiasm of my 20-year-old and the wisdom of my 40-year-old. And I think if you could put those things together, it's a pretty potent combination. And I think most people out there can relate to what they were like at 20. Um, which was probably, you know, had that ability to be passionate, but maybe might not have got to that position of being able to be balanced and um, more wise as we are maybe towards our 40s. Some of us find it earlier, some of us find it later. Um, But to work with either individuals or teams or organisations to help them to deliver as close to their potential as possible. And, And that's really what I do now with my work. It sounds fascinating, and when you consider 
the generations that we have within you know workplaces now from the generation x and y to to, to the millennials and, and and i'm not i'm not really a fan of labels per se but it, it does allow us to understand the the breadth and the depth of, of people that we have in organizations i would imagine that that clever play on on, on 2040 would would resonate quite quite well with organizations given the diversity of of age in in their employees i hope you're right um and i think there is definitely something there that i experienced coming back as a 40 year old to to compete in a team of 20 somethings that i think is really similar to a working environment and for me the the interesting challenge around leadership and that I experienced was to actually get over my own ego, be part of an eight and realize this is about us and this is not about me. And to think we will have our best chance of winning if I'm at my best, but actually if these other seven are better than me, that's not a threat, that's actually an opportunity. And I think when we look at the working world right now, I think, as we facing the challenges of the globalized market, the volatility, uncertainty um, uh, that we live in, um, I think the need for to be digitally savvy, I think as a leader, you need to empower younger people to perform at their best and perform in ways that you don't even understand. Um, and certainly not ways you'd be able to perform in yourself. But I think that takes the same ability to get over your ego and say, how do you empower others? And that's a challenge that I think leaders face right now. Yeah, there's a lot of emphasis and focus on, on leaders and, and leadership and the role that, that, that it plays. There's, it's well documented. There's, there's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of material articles and, and, and those types of things. What one thing do you think would make the biggest difference when it comes to leadership in the future? Um, I think right now um, there's a massive thing about uh, maximizing uh, different ways of thinking. Um, and I think it sounds, it sounds like something we talk about a lot, but embracing diversity um, or embracing divergent thinking. So as we sit here now with the sort of Brexit um, looming, um, I think we're going to have to accept that people have different views. People have different um, beliefs that they're bringing to every situation. And we can't afford to vilify people for having the different views to ourselves. Um, we can't vilify people, funnily enough, although we might choose that we're going to step outside Europe. We actually need to be all the more understanding of difference um, if we are to heal and if we are to maximize whatever situation we find ourselves left with. Um, and in organizations, things are going to be difficult. For companies, things are probably going to be harder rather than easier as we go ahead. But I think we have to be good at embracing different ways of thinking, different obviously different cultures, different gender balances within organizations in order to actually say this chaos um, is something we're going to have to figure out how to make the most of 
not something that we're going to have to keep tearing ourselves apart around. Yeah, again, it's really it's really interesting getting your thoughts on that because it, it's something that I I see as well in in the work that I do within organisations around leadership and they're they're not they don't have all the answers right now and I, and I think that's the the interesting intriguing and chaotic bit whereas historically in the past we, we've been able to default to a certain way of doing things or, or a certain model for for working or, or or getting through a certain challenge or problem the world's very different in in 2019 and that idea of embracing divergent thinking i think is going to be critical because the old models and the old rules aren't going to be fit for the future and the future is you know with it well it, it's just around the corner in terms of brexit and the fact that you talk about chaos there the likelihood is we, we're not going to have order for a while but it, we're not going to come through the chaos by you know people rallying behind certain people and, and trying to fight one corner or fight one cause it's going to require us to come together and work it out together which is which is very different in our society and our culture yeah i totally agree with you and i i'm minded to think about the sort of conversations that we have with our colleagues and the sort of way that leaders communicate with us um and i think about the difference it makes when we go to a higher level about what does draw us together rather than what tears us apart um and that might mean we have to have some serious conversations about the different views that we take on things but ultimately i think the question why are we here in this organization why are we here kind of sharing this country actually needs to be around uh, that that's where we need to be to be talking what does success look like in the longer term rather than just in the short term um, in organizations um, and then in teams and then for us as individuals so that we make the right choices for the longer term accepting that the short term is going to be difficult um, and i think about the conversations that i've experienced in sports teams the difference it makes when instead of just sitting there in the back of the boat shouting pull harder um, work harder the cocks in the back of the boat shouted out the names of my children halfway through the olympic final and he knew why each member of our team was there and was able to remind them of what was important to each of them and what was the thing that brought us there individually and what was the thing that we were trying to achieve collectively and i think we need to find the same metaphor now which is to think in an organization or in a country what is it that we're collectively here to do um, what is it that binds us together and then what are our individual motives that that if we all deliver on those, we'll actually take us closer to where we want to go. Because we're going to have individual differences, but I think we have to figure out where we collectively come together. And I think good leaders of teams have those conversations. They work out what's compelling for all of us, and then they work out how the individuals fit into that and are individually driven and motivated to go there. It's interesting, and it's got me pondering again, which is, which is great. Greg, Simon Sinek talks about starting with the why, which you've alluded to in, in what you've just shared there around purpose. What do you see as your purpose and, and how you can you know, make a good contribution to society going forward? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. I love that that Simon Sinek thinking, and it's it, for me it was so important um, within what I've done within my sport and what I what I think is important within organisations. Um, in terms of my why, um, at the moment I have to say it's it's around being uh, it, it starts close to home, so around being good parents, um, around not missing my children growing up. So you know why am I here? Um, to, to pass on to the next generation as, as many good things as I possibly can and not to miss their, their, their first steps in life. Um, um, why else? I, I, I think at the moment it feels selfish to have a work-life balance. It feels selfish to say I want to do enough work that I pay my bills, but I also want to be able to look after the people closest to me and look after myself, so look after my health, um and be able to to have some time each day if possible when i can be mindful and think about being me at my best rather than just um those days that we just sort of slog our way through and collapse into bed at the end of i don't, I don't want to live days like that i want to live days where i feel like i've i've made a difference um and the difference is probably most with like i say my family my children and then with the people I work with. So I had a coaching session with someone yesterday and it was fantastic. And I loved the fact that they, they went away clear on some things they were going to do that was going to improve their ability to perform and hopefully the relationships they have with the people close to them. And that feels like a, a really worthy and, and positive thing to have done uh, with, with half a day of my time. Um, so I love the buzz I get from working with a team or working with an individual or, or, or even standing on a stage and speaking to a big group and thinking this has helped some people to get more out of their, their working lives um, or their personal lives. And that, that feels pretty good. Yeah. It, it's interesting and that you say that it feels selfish, but actually I, I think more and more of us are coming round to this, way of thinking that we we don't have to do everything in the way that we've done it previously whether you work for yourself or, or you work in in the business world more and more people now with that awareness and, and being more mindful are starting to make different decisions in, in terms of working hours or if they are working you know traditional monday to friday nine to five they're being quite deliberate when they come home and at weekends and, and, and evenings. And I think whilst it's perhaps not how we are conditioned or have been conditioned to be, I think more and more of us are starting to get a little bit selfish about where our time and, and also where our energy goes, because, you know, it's not all about just flogging your guts out and, you know, <laughs> giving it all to work and, and all your best time going there. It's about having that awareness of the other important people in your life. I think that's really true. And I think to me, the ability to say no to work um, is a really interesting thing to have grappled with because I think when we're employed um, and when we're really committed, I think almost back to where we started, you become so passionate about what it is that you do in your work that you make it more important than it actually is just as I made rowing races more important than they actually were um, and I think it feels selfish to actually say you know what this is only a piece of work 
um, and I'm prepared to walk away from it and say, no, I'm not going to do that piece of work um, because I value my time more highly. Um, and when you're employed by someone um, or whether you're self-employed to actually say, no, you know, we've got a, we've got an idea that we're meant to have some work-life balance. We're meant to leave at 5.30 and, and not then be on call all weekend um, unless we are on call all weekend and, and you know, people are then actually we should take that time and, and spend it with our families and, and be valuing the moments that we have because all too fast, you know, these moments are gone. And as I say, you know, as a parent, I don't speak to many parents whose kids have grown up and left home and they say, God, that took forever. Uh, I can't believe my kids were at home so long. Most people say they grew up so fast and suddenly it was gone. And, uh, and I'm quite determined to just try and enjoy the last few years I've got before mine will probably move on to other things in their lives. And, and whether they leave home or not, I guess I'll have less and less of a role to play. Um, and so, yeah, I want to make sure I enjoy it while I can. It's good. And, and I totally agree with you uh, being a parent as well uh, and having some time you know, with, with my children and, you know, actually saying no, it's, it, it can be hugely and it is hugely empowering albeit sometimes you know when we start to say no to to people uh, or no to certain work um you know it, it cause, could cause a little bit of angst or, or a little bit of conflict um greg i have what i call some 60 second quick fire questions towards the end of each interview and this is really just to give the listeners a slightly different insight into each of my guests are you ready to answer some quick fire questions yes let's do it Excellent. Good man. Okay. First one, someone that you admire and admit to following on social media. Oh, crikey. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I'm going to get this done in a minute. Who do I like <laughs> following on social media? Um, uh, I think uh, who's Nigel Owens is a good follow. Yes. The rugby referee. Yes. Top man. Okay, let's see how we get over this one. Three guests to have to dinner, past or present. Okay. Um, so three guests for dinner. I don't want to just go Muhammad Ali. Um, I was privileged to meet Muhammad Ali. Sorry, this is meant to be one minute, isn't it? That's he was right. at Sports Personality of the Year in the year 2000. And I'm never normally one to go up and, and try to have a moment with famous people but I really genuinely thought he was the greatest. And, uh, and I got to shake his hand. What was interesting was, although he wasn't that well, he had an incredibly firm handshake and he wasn't prepared to just let me go, having shaken his hand so I could just say to people, I want to shake Muhammad Ali's hand. He really locked me with his gaze and held me in conversation. And I, I, had, I exchanged a few words with him and it was, it was incredible. Um, so he was a very credible man. So I think Muhammad Ali at any stage, but in his prime would have been an incredible person to spend time with. So he'd have to be up there. Um, some other people. Um, I mean, I've got some great friends from rowing. Um, so, so numerous of my friends from rowing who just bring a lot to the party. Um, I feel bad naming any one of them. So, so one of my rowing friends um, who would just have brought some good banter to the, to the party. And then, um probably one or two relatives who 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 I lost when I was younger and didn't spend as much time with as I should have so uncles grandfathers cousins um who are important characters in my family but who who 
you know, died when I was young, um, I would say I'd love to have actually caught up with them and found out what they were like in their prime. Again, I don't want to call any individual out because it's a bit unfair on the others, but, but some of those relatives who were, who were so important and I think helped shape me to be the person who I am because they were you know, so closely related to my parents and so on, that I would say one or two of those people. Well, it sounds like we've got a dinner party. Um, yeah, more than three. <laughs> Filled the table. Yeah, you're not you're not the first guest uh, on the show to uh, choose more than three. <laughs> a guilty pleasure which you do when you have some time to yourself. Um, I have to say, um, it's probably going to the golf driving range. Which, uh, yeah, my wife, my wife and my kids are like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I just quite enjoy trying to whack the ball as hard as I can." And do you play off a certain handicap? Yeah, but I'm not telling you what it is. It's not good enough yet. <laughs> okay. Once well, it's once it's safely where I want it to be, then I'll be able to say, "Yeah, I'll do that," and I'll be happily able to join those sort of pro celebrity games. Okay. So we're we talking single or double figures? We're still double figures for now. Okay. I thought so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a book or a podcast that you would recommend? Um. Oh, what would I recommend? Um. I'm not a massive reader. I loved, um, I loved Outliers. I thought that was a great book um, to, to understand a bit more about what makes people special and, and, and to understand some of the things that we have and some of the things we can create. That's good. It's, it's a, good, good, a good book by Gladwell. Have you read... Um, That's Glad Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm it, yeah. Gladwell. Have you read um, The Talent Code? Uh, I think I have it by my bed. <laughs> there we go you haven't read it okay um, yes. one tip for improving overall well-being um tip for overall well-being eat food more slowly okay tom rath talks about that in eating yeah food. yeah no for me it's, it's and put your phone away um put your phone off to one side and, and, and eat food more slowly you know we try and try and have as many meals as i can with my kids and with my wife um, and they find me really irritating because I went on one of these mindfulness courses, you know, where you sit with a, a sweet in your mouth and, and eat it really slowly and notice all the flavors of a raisin or a bit of chocolate. And uh, I've delivered programs like that. Okay. And, and it just feels like you can slow time down. So instead of just rushing through things and our lives are so busy, you know, if you just spend that little bit more time, just t slow time down by just having, having more chews on your food. And, and enjoying what you're actually eating rather than just trying to fill up at the gas station and get out as quickly as you can. Um, enjoy, enjoy what you're doing as you're doing it. I love it. Who would you like to see or hear as a future guest on the Perfect Imbalance podcast? Oh, okay. Um, uh, I think, um, I'm, I mean, I think Gareth Southgate's a pretty special guy. Um, and I love what he's done with the England football team from a position of humility. Um, and I, I'd love to hear his views on things. Excellent. Do you, do you, do you know him well, Craig? Um, I don't know him massively well, no. I have had the, the lovely opportunity of sharing my story and experiences with him and his coaching team. Um, okay. And I loved what they did this year, this summer, in creating a different environment around the players. Um, and I think that's, you know, they were, they were real people having real conversations. And again, you know, starting with why and realising they want to get us to, to love the England football team again. Um, and, and there's an ultimate goal to win the World Cup, but actually it's the goal to, to give us all an amazing summer and amazing pleasure actually watching that team and feeling 
feeling proud again, which I think they did really well. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know what a turnaround in terms of you know the media perception and and how he was portrayed. So yeah, long may yeah. that continue for for all of us. Um, yeah. How can listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I guess they can come to my website, gregsell2040.com. Um, there's an opportunity to send me a message. So they can send me a message by there and I'd be happy to have a chat and, and connect with people if they want to. Fantastic. And one final takeaway for the listeners. Um, I think for me, keeping life in perspective and enjoying the present, um, we feel, you know, we've, we've gone down this avenue of talking about work-life balance and, and well-being. And to me, just enjoying the moment as best as you can. I know there's loads of competing tensions, but, but to keep things in perspective, enjoy the moment, do your best at what you're doing, and then be able to close the door and, and walk away from it and then, and then enjoy some other things in life. What a wonderful message to leave the listeners with, Greg. Thank you very much indeed for agreeing to come on the show and sharing a bit of insight into your journey and also the stuff that you're doing uh, currently with, with individuals, teams and organisations. So thank you very much indeed. It's been very enjoyable. I've enjoyed uh, sort of uh, reminiscing and think through what, what makes me tick somewhat. So thanks for prompting me along the way. You're most welcome. Now, if you enjoyed the episode with Greg Searle, then please do check out the details in the show notes and start a conversation with him on Twitter or LinkedIn or indeed through his website. If you like the episode as well, please do leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes. It will help the Perfect Imbalance podcast reach more people. Likewise, if you want to get involved on social media and ask us a question or share your feedback, please use the hashtag #PerfectImbalance. Check out all the episodes to date via the link in the show notes. Now, tune in next time to hear Dr. Emma Foden and myself review Series 3. My, how quickly that's gone. And also look ahead to Series 4. Remember this, when you have a balance, enjoy it. When you've got an imbalance, embrace it. For in those moments, you're striving towards achieving your next success, increasing your happiness or looking for greater fulfillment. Bye for now.